Today I'm calling this message Paul's Example and Timothy's Instruction. 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's Example and Timothy's Instruction. Where in verse 12, after talking about the gospel that Paul suffers for, that Paul has been entrusted with, the gospel that Jesus died for, verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of the Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. And then he, remember, he gives an excursus on who God is. God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from eternity past. So focusing on God is the way you get through the suffering that this life brings in terms of the ministry of the gospel. Jesus Christ from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death on the one hand, and on the other hand, brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For which gospel I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher. And now, Paul is going to summarize his example. For which, verse 12, I suffer also these things for which reason also these things I suffer but I am not ashamed now in verse 8 he told Timothy not to be ashamed and now he's saying for his own account he's not ashamed the gospel message is shameful to a world in rejection of it but to we who have Christ the man crucified by the Romans is no shame to us he's our glory through the resurrection. But Paul suffers from his countrymen. He suffers from the Romans. He's imprisoned by them. And in this imprisonment, he will be killed. This is the last letter of Paul. And he's going to tell you pretty soon in this, in this book, if you just go ahead and keep reading second Timothy, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. I'm about to die. I'm not ashamed. Why? Remember what we said, the Christian life is not shame and it's not weakness, it's courage, but it's not meanness, it's not anger. I know whom I believed. Rather than looking at those opposed to me or who would cause me shame if I thought like they do, I know whom I believed. I have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I have been persuaded that he is able to guard my deposit unto that day. That's the literal what the, what the Greek says, if you bring it into English and almost word for word. He is able to fulasso, to guard my paratheke, my deposit until that day. There's a lot of questions about what is the deposit. Your English tradition is to say that it means the thing that I have deposited with Jesus until that day. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. You know, the King James translation, which is the correct, I think the right way to read this. The deposit is the thing Jesus is guarding. And so it is the commitment of Paul in his life, in his work, in his effort. Remember the things, sometimes Paul says some things that are shocking. He says, if there's no resurrection, then we are of all men to be pitied most. Because my whole life, is hanging on the hope of the resurrection. Everything I'm living for is Christ. 
Now, Paul has a little bit different experience of Jesus Christ than you and I do. He met him face to face at least twice before he died. He could say in Philippians, it's better for me if I go be with him than if I stay here with you. That's how Paul thinks about Jesus. It's better. He knows he's been there. 2 Corinthians 12. But you and I take what he said on faith. He's an eyewitness of something that we haven't seen, but we long to see. And so that which Paul has deposited, if you will, into Christ, he's got. It's secured. And we said this is the best kind of investment, the best kind of safe deposit. That's a real safe deposit. He's able to guard my deposit until that day, the judgment seat of Christ. In verse 13, we have the command for the... Uh, for Timothy. Paul goes from his example to his instruction. He provides Timothy an example, and then he says, you got an example. Verse 8, he says, don't be ashamed. Then he goes into the discussion of how Paul himself is not ashamed, and now he's back to telling Timothy, you be like me. Do what I do. Hold. Hupo tuposin is the word I'm translating either example or pattern or prototype. You have tupos in the middle of that word, tupos, like the, like the type. But it's the idea of the, the example, the example. And then he says, echo, hold it. Hold the example of hugiainos, sound words, where we get the word hygiene, health, or soundness. It's, it means healthy in the sense of being sound. Of sound words which from me you heard. You, in the past, completed portrayal of the action, you heard these words. And then he says, in faith and love, that is in Christ Jesus. And I will translate that. What he means there is by means of the faithfulness and the love, which are ours in union with Christ Jesus. Our position in Jesus gives us the capacity for faithfulness. That's why I translate faithfulness. You're going to hold the example of Paul with this staying power, with the faithfulness that comes from our relationship with Jesus. The love, our, the love we have is the love of God shed abroad in our hearts in Romans 5. This is the way you will hold the pattern that Paul has. And then he gives him another command. Why are, why are the words in red? Because they're Paul's commands inspired by the Spirit for, for Timothy to act on. He says, hold, and then he says, guard. What's the difference between holding and guarding? No difference. They're both different ways of saying the same thing is that you've been given a precious thing and you need to maintain it. You need to hang on to it. It needs to become important enough that it, is a, it, it needs to become as important to you as it is to God. Let me say it that way. In other words, the most important thing you have is what God has given you for his work, for his glory. Guard the good deposit and now he doesn't say by means of the faithfulness and love which are ours in Christ Jesus, but he says the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Where, where can I validate that we mean by faithfulness and love? These two words are the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit, the effect of the Holy Spirit. If I walk by the Spirit in this life, the effect is love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. See that whole thing. And that word pistis, often translated faith, is also possibly faithfulness. And it depends on how he's using it in context. 
It is either the faith you express toward the faithful object or it is by God giving you his grace. You become faithful or steadfast or loyal. These are all synonyms for what we're talking about, the meritorious faithfulness that is the fruit of the spirit. You guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. In other words, verses 13 and 14 of 2 Timothy 1 are restating the command. It says the command and then it restates it. From one side, it talks about the relationship with Christ. From the other side, it talks about the personal agent that Jesus has given you to enable you to do this work. So why would you need to double down on this instruction? Why do you and I need to be told to hang on? I'm asking the question of everyone in the room, not just those that are still with me. I'm asking the question to circle back around and pick you all back up. Why should you hang on? Why do you have to be told twice, Timothy, to hang on to this? Because the nature of the world and the sin nature and the devil that you're dealing with, the nature of this life is to be pulled free of this example. You're hanging on because someone's trying to tug it away from you. So there's a deliberateness to the Christian life. This puts the lie to the idea that if I become a Christian, if I become a believer in Christ, then I will inevitably be successful in my performance. No, Timothy has somehow dropped the ball in the, in the case of the, of the message because Paul's telling him to rekindle the spiritual gift he got, get back to work. We have trouble, but we don't have a spirit of cowardice, right? We're, we're strong in the spirit, so get back in your walk by the spirit and, and your function of your gift. So he tells Timothy in the context of failure or at least spiritual despair that you have to be deliberate about this and that God in you makes you able to hang on. You can't do what God wants you to do in your own energy of the flesh and your power, what you brought to the table, but you are infinitely capable in the omnipotence of God, the Holy Spirit to do what God wants you to do. The greatest squandering of resources in history has to be the giving of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity to live in the hearts of believers since the day of Pentecost in 33 AD. It has to be the greatest squandering of assets that God gave us the spirit and we do anything but walk by the spirit. We do anything but order our lives according to the dictates of God and his purpose and his glorious plan for us so that we're successful in his power and his grace. We do anything but this. We make the Holy Spirit um, there to make me feel good. And we make it about feelings. The presence of the Spirit of God. The, Spirit, the scripture says nothing about the Holy Spirit and my feelings except that the fruit of the Spirit will be joy and peace. Whatever other things could be related to feelings like long-suffering. But these virtues are not the focus of the work of the Spirit. Why did God give you the Holy Spirit? According to Luke chapter 24 and Acts chapter 1, the reason the Holy Spirit came for the disciples to live in them is so that they would be his witnesses throughout all the nations, that they would be his disciples, so they would make disciples. It is for the work that God has given his church to do and so I say it's the greatest squandering of resources, partly because we haven't read the scriptures and seen why do we even have the Holy Spirit? 
Oh, it's about my emotional experience. It's about my ecstatic utterance, about jumping up and down when we come to church for so many. And that problem has not been a mainstream problem in the church, but it has been a ragged fringe problem since the second century. As I mentioned last time with Montanism. We make it about theology. I have the Holy Spirit so I can assimilate a solid, overwhelmingly conduct, you know, condensed and, uh, and arranged system of theology. Then I have a really good grasp of, 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 the, of the, the material. That's not being a doer of the word. Yes, you need a good systematic theology. I love systematic theology. The Christians are all theologians, most of them bad at it. But, but we need to, to assimilate theology. But that's not why God gave us the Holy Spirit. Primarily, it's so you could do the work, which requires sound theology to understand. I was joking around with the kids the other day. I said, um, if I was going to write a book on Christian warfare, spiritual warfare, you know, for a, an audience of only men, I would say, I would, I would title it, there's a war on, comma, moron. You know, they're like, think... There, there's a battle and you can't see it, but it rages. And first Peter five, eight, the devil's like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He's prowling around looking to eat someone. This is why Paul says, Timothy, you have to guard it. Of course, I say it's written to men because we can call each other moron. And especially ourselves, we wouldn't call you that ladies. And don't start saying if the shoe fits, guys. I'm saying we don't, we don't speak that way to our ladies. And of course, Jesus said you don't call your brother moron in Matthew 5. But all I'm trying to say jokingly is that if you live your life in a war and you don't think you're in war, then you're divorced from reality. You're, you're that little kid wandering around the middle of a battlefield with rounds going off all over the place and just unprepared, naked, uh, clueless, just ready to be harvested by one of these artillery shells falling in. But if you know you're at war and you know that there is an enemy who's opposing you, then you know to be vigilant, to guard, to gird up with the full armor of God. And that's when words like this, hold fast and guard this good deposit, sort of take their, their emphasis. I found an interesting comparison by looking at the Greek between verses 12 and 14. I thought you would like to see it. He says in verse 12, we've already seen, he's able to guard my deposit unto that day. Remember that? Guard is phuloso. Deposit is the word paratheke. And it means a deposit, something that has been entrusted to someone else to, for them to secure it. Property that others secure is kind of the meaning of deposit. In this verse, in verse 12, he, God, is able to guard. God does the guarding. And the deposit is what we've committed to him of ourselves. When Paul says, I have committed to him, my deposit. This is what Paul has given God, if you will. And he knows, therefore, that his life counts, that his time counts. That, you know, as, as Jesus says in Matthew's writing, the last are first and the first are last. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. And he who finds his life and rejects me or, or, or to the exclusion of my call in his life will lose it. It's saying that there's eternal value in your daily choices that are for him. And he doesn't secure with eternal value the choices that you're doing separate from him. So, so gain your life, in other words. And he says, Paul says that he can hold fast. He can guard 
the commitment. But look in verse 14, he says, guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. The deposit in this case of the ministry, the responsibility that's been entrusted to you through the word of God. It was deposited with Timothy. So in this case, Timothy's commanded to do the guarding. Paul flips the language and uses it in different ways. Most assuredly. And the deposit that God has given Timothy is the word itself and the ministry of the word. So what am I saying by looking by what, what, do you, what does this observation give me? That God is the one who enables me to do what he wants me to do. God himself is making that valuable. And the same type of thing God is doing, he's requiring me to do and the power he gives me. You're entering into God's works as you guard the deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Retain the pattern of sound words which you heard from me and the faithfulness and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard the deposit through the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. First of all, the gospel ministry will be the greatest honor and privilege of your life. By way of summary, the gospel ministry, by just comparing what God is doing with you and what he's requiring of you, where it's the same type of work of guarding the deposit, you'll be like your heavenly father, in other words. It's the greatest honor and privilege of your life. I said last week, it'll be very common for people to take the pastoral epistles and say, Paul's just talking to Timothy. This is not for me. And miss the point where Paul says, I'm following Christ's example. So you become imitators of me as I imitate Christ. Timothy is the first recipient, but he's supposed to follow Paul's example. And then we're supposed to, as if we were in Timothy's church in Ephesus, we're supposed to follow Timothy's example. And it doesn't mean, listen, it doesn't mean that you become the preacher. I've seen this a strong ministry with a pastor that says everything with certainty. And then every, everything people say then that from that church, everything is dogmatically certain like they know <laughs> because the pastor was certain. Until you read the text, you're like, oh, I learned something I didn't know. And you start to grab some intellectual honesty and say, there are things that I don't know and the things that God has said that I've understood I do know. And that's, a, that's an important moment, I think. But you can't just say, well, my pastor says dogmatically, so I'm just gonna copy him and start preaching to everyone with dogma. Maybe you've seen the Facebook posts, I don't know. <laughs> now, it's a huge privilege and the way it's going to work in your life will be different than the way it works in mine. It's the same work. I mean, it's the same overarching mission of making disciples, but it's a big work. If you think about the military, I, I know that well, so I can use the illustration. We should all know it well. We've all got our flag, our flags up. When you think of what is the army over there doing when it's over there, wherever there is, what's it over there doing? We think of guys with rifles, um, night vision equipment, boots on, helmets, arriving in vehicles to conduct various military operations, raids, attacks, at times defenses. I hadn't heard a lot about our army conducting a defense in a long time. They learned to do it. We haven't had to do it in a long time movement to contact, all these different, you think of these tactical things that these guys are doing. I mean, don't you think of the, the movie side of it? The, people shooting rifles at other people. Think of that as the army. But that is not the experience 
of most people that wear our uniform at all, in a combat zone or otherwise. Think paperwork. Think billions of gallons of jet fuel to power all our vehicles, which is almost like kerosene or diesel. Think, uh, think the massive logistics to cook food for 25,000 troops in a brigade unit. Now, five or maybe 10,000 of those guys might be involved in that, in that armor brigade or infantry brigade. They may be involved in the kinds of things that we think of in terms of, of military affairs. But that's the frontline unit, back up to where the rest of the army is. And they're filling out paperwork and shuffling equipment and supplies and material to point to that, to that point of the spear. And what am I saying? I'm saying that not everybody is the rifleman, right? Sometimes you need the guy that knows how to fix the run-flat tires that don't. Because you'll never get the rifleman in the fight if his, if his truck is down. So this is very interesting. Much like, let's just keep the illustration going. Much like the Department of the Army agents will tell you ultimately where you'll go. You'll try to get a contract with them if you, if you enlist or if you become an officer. You'll try to say, this is my first choice assignment. One of, the most, one of the most efficient young officers I ever met, who was older than me, he was a mentor to me for a short time, but very efficient, very motivated, very go get them kind of guy, went to ROTC program in college to go be an army officer. And he did his best and, and uh, he was designated chemical corps. They put him in the chemical service. Do you know what the chemical corps does in our army? It washes the vehicles that get in chemical strikes. It, it makes the sirens work that go off when the guys up in the front get a chemical strike. It prepares for chemical attack and to respond to that. They don't shoot chemical weapons at people. It's purely, as far as my level of clearance would ever know, the chemical corps is just to to defend and protect our people who get hit with chemicals. In other words, this guy wanted to go be an infantry officer and they forced him into chemical corps. Oh. Well, you don't get a choice what your spiritual gift is. You know, he could become a general officer from the chemical corps. He could have an incredible career in the army. And also, I love that. And also, and also too as well, he could be, he could find himself in a force-on-force -force firefight and the way the military conducts operations today where he was really uh, central. He could get a silver star or medal of honor for discharging his weapon to save his troops. You never know what God's going to put, what, what situation you'll find yourself in. But my point is not everyone's going to be the apostle. Not everyone's going to be the apostolic emissary. And this church certainly doesn't harangue you that you need to go preach. Understand, I'm not haranguing you that you need to go to seminary to learn to read Greek and Hebrew. When I read it with you, I'm not saying you need to read Greek. I, if you're interested, if you have an aptitude or a desire for that, I definitely want to promote that. I want to go after that. I teach Greek and Hebrew, especially Hebrew. And I love teaching it. And it's, I tell the students, it's the, it's the hardest looking easy thing you'll ever do. It's the mathematics side. If there's a, if, if there's a hard, hard, side of seminary training, it's Hebrew. It's the widow maker. It's the thing that guys just barely sk skate through and get C's or whatever. And then they throw their books away. 
But, but if they would stick with it, if they would, if they would learn to read Hebrew, they could actually exposit the Psalms and the prophets and, they, and the law in a way that brings it to life. And I need to get into some Old Testament with you. But my point is, you don't have to be Timothy to benefit from Paul's instruction to Timothy. If God, if God has a call on your life to communication ministry, like Ephesians 4, 11 and following, if he has that, then growing in the word, you'll learn and desire that. And you'll eventually really want to do that. And you'll be skilled, equipped to do that. Right. But that's the same thing. If you're supposed to be the helps person that, that logistically makes it happen that without your help, this other believer doesn't even get to get the encouragement and love they need so that they grow and they get back in the word or whatever the, the giftedness God has for you. My point is that you cannot take Timothy and dodge what we're saying about the ministry of the gospel. It's for all of us in the many wonderful multifaceted ways that God is working in our lives. So the gospel is a great privilege. Second, it will also bring suffering for a number of reasons. The gospel ministry brings suffering. It's inescapable from the life of Paul as our example. Paul says, suffer with me in this context. Suffer together with me. It's going to hurt. I think that's the reason people don't get into the ministry. And I mean, the part of the ministry that God has carved out for you, the works that he prepared beforehand that you would walk in them in Ephesians 2.10. The reason we don't do it is we know inherently there's going to be suffering involved. Third, your adversary is opposed to the gospel as a primary thrust of his endeavors. Why do you think it says that he has deceived the nations? Why does it say he's the father of lies and all liars have him as their father? Why? Deception. Well, that's his main deal. Because in part, I just have to assume misery loves company. And he hates the human race. And his goal is for the, the human race to suffer his fate. I think it must be. That's what it means that he's looking for someone to devour. The way Satan and the roaring lion devours us is we believe lies about God. He lies and we trust him. We believe in his lie against what God has said. That's Genesis chapter three. Fourth, the world system that the devil is controlling is therefore aligned against the gospel as a top priority. It's the, most, it's the most beautiful day of the year out there today. We're like, we know, speed it up. You know, the Brad Paisley song, long sermon on a pretty Sunday. Would y'all come back in force? Everybody come to the picnic next Sunday. If I let go right now, would you, would you, you know, could you pay it forward? I think I have 15 more points. Um, the world is... On the one hand, the people that are deceived by Satan who are the target of God's love in John 3.16. But on the other hand, it is the system of deception that holds sway over the nations that Satan ministers through his demons. Beloved, I don't know how Satan communicates to the human race. I don't know how he does it. I know in the Bible instances where he does it, I know how he does it there. In the garden, there was, there was the craftiest animal in the garden was the serpent. And then the serpent speaks opposed to God and the woman hears it. So demon possession is one way Satan communicates. We have demon possession all through the gospels and the demons are speaking through the humans. 
That's apparently one way it happens. But I don't know all the ways that it happens. And I wouldn't speculate. I just know that the nations are all deceived. There are lots of counterfeits and people want to believe the lie instead of the truth. And therefore they're in darkness. And so if you're in a war, there's a war on, remember? If you're in a war, this is the nature of the battlefield. The truth or the lie, deception or the gospel. And this system is aligned against the gospel as its top priority. So you have to guard it, this deposit. Fifth, this will mean the deceived masses will hate the gospel and those who speak it. I think it's a clear implication. And Timothy is wounded somehow. We, it's open-ended why Timothy is down, but he's down. He's been shot down somehow. Ephesus was a horrible place to minister. It was a great place to practice witchcraft. It was a tough place to be a Christian in Timothy's day. The paganism was rampant. And just imagine the culture. You know what culture is, right? Culture is the collection of beliefs, perspectives, understandings that everybody knows. This is just how it is. This is who we are. That's culture. Some of the things we all know are true. And a lot of things we all know aren't true. And where Satan has infiltrated every culture with that world system, that, that root of, of cancer that grows up in every culture, it's that deception, right? That has fed what we all know. Boy, was there a messy, nasty, uh, Artemis-worshipping culture with magic uh, practices, all kinds of religious wickedness in Ephesus. Tied in together with business. Business and religion were the same and always have been in most cultures. And so Timothy had a real tough task. He had to be in that culture, but stand apart from the world's influence on it. You and I have to be in this culture here and stand apart from the world's influence on it. And see, when the culture says this is what we all know, what they mean is this is who we choose to be. We are aligned and one with one another in the culture. And that is a horror to be in Connecticut in 2021 or in Texas in 2021, the two places that I've lived the most. It's a terrible thing to be so aligned with the culture that this is who I am. And for you to reject what I hold to and who I am is to bring my, my, my rejection of you and my hatred of you. The Bible criticizes our culture constantly where it's been deceived especially on the topic of S-I-N, the biggest three-letter word in the world, sin. All right. So you're going to suffer for the gospel is what we're saying. Sixth, we're told of our inevitable suffering for the gospel so that we'll not be surprised by it. What did George C. Scott say? Two octaves lower than Patton's actual voice in the movie Patton. <laughs> what was the great quote when he's talking to the third army uh, officers before they go to war? Something about when you see your, your best friend destroyed by a machine gun. He didn't say it that way. We see your best friend dead from a machine gun. You'll know what to do. Good officers prepare their men for what is the most horrible experience on planet earth. Beloved, you're in warfare. So it's important that we know from Paul that this is going to hurt. Now he's, tell, he's picking Peter up and dusting him off after he's been hurt. 
He's saying, don't be shocked by this. Come suffer together with me. Seventh, we're also constantly told that the risk slash reward calculation for disciple making is worth it. We're told it's going to hurt. And we're told no pain, no gain. Both true. Let's, let's lighten the illustration. Paul does later in 2 Timothy. If you work out, if you compete in the Olympics, you compete to win. So you, you, you work hard on your body so that you're a strong competitor. And it hurts. And there's discipline associated with it. It's worth it. Because of the reward that comes at the judgment seat of Christ. Eighth, you're not on your own. You have the Holy Spirit in you so that you'll be empowered to do the work of the ministry. Never let it be said from this family of believers that we are putting you under some sort of, some sort of guilt trip about serving the Lord. You, you can't be under a guilt trip for serving the Lord. And here's why. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God in you. Nothing's being asked of you but for God to work his omnipotence through you. Nothing's being asked of you but that you actually enjoy the riches of what God has provided in the work. And so, no, there's no pressure here. No more pressure than the fact that God the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in your heart. So I'm here to remind you and myself, let's not waste our time. Let's not squander the resources. You have God in you to strengthen you for the work he has called you to do. So ninth, this will require courage and not cowardice. Courage. Where will that come from? God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who works his word in us so that we have courage. Where does it not come from? Looking at myself and seeing what kind of tough person I am in and of myself. That is the the prescription for a, a little bighorn experience in your suffering. Now, you don't have it in you by yourself to deal with this, but you have the spirit of God in you. And yeah, you can take it. And so 10th, our focus is never the suffering itself, but the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for us. This message from Paul is to a Christian who is mature enough to have already served in the gospel, who's suffered already, where he's been shot down, who needs to be rekindled and picked up and dusted off and get back to the fight. Now, Paul doesn't take off his gloves and start slapping him <laughs> for being in the infirmary with, uh, with battle fatigue, as they called it in World War II. Paul tells him, where's our focus? Where does he do that, Pastor Dave? In verse eight, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony, but suffer together with me. In verse nine, he says, we suffer for the gospel and the power of God, verse eight. And it's about God who saved us and called us with a holy calling. And then he starts talking about Jesus Christ. The strength for you to do the work that God has for you to do is the message that you carry itself. So let's do a little model day and then we'll close and pray and sing. You get up in the morning and you don't think about what the day is about from God's perspective. 
you think about how your back hurts or there's this thing going on at work or whatever. I got to get the car to the shop real quick before I can get over to work. Whatever the thing is that grabs your conscious attention as you start your day. Well, right there, you're leaving the house without your armor. You're, you're not prepared for what today holds. And all you get is today. The service, the, the, the field of service is the day unit. Today's over at the end of today. And then you get tomorrow if, if we wake up tomorrow. And then all you have is the next today. You have today. That's what I'm saying. So you start off without your armor in your day. You don't remember what the day is for. And you're not thinking about who it's for. So you do, you get the car to the shop just in time. And there's somebody there that takes an interest in you for whatever reason and says, so what's going on? They start the conversation with you. If you're like me and you haven't started the day saying, God, use me today. Empower me through your spirit today. Let me be about your work today. If you haven't started it that way, then when you get to that conversation, if you're like me, you're probably not going to be ready to have it. You're probably going to look for the fewest possible words to get out of it because you have other plans going forward. And you have no idea what kind of seeds were planted three years ago and what happened with this person lost somebody three months ago and how they've been thinking about heaven and earth and eternity and death since then and how here they are and they for some reason took an interest in you. And you just weren't ready. We dodged the message. We said this was to Timothy. That's not to all Christians. Or you did believe the message. You said, no, I need to be about God's work. But you forgot about it as you started your day unit. See what I mean? And so missed opportunity. I just wasn't thinking about it. And then maybe it hits you in the middle of the conversation. The person's eyes have already kind of moved on. They're looking for something else. The, the opportunity is over. Maybe God's gracious to you in that moment. He's gracious to us all the time, but maybe he says, you know, you get that little, that little nudge, that little reminder from what you've studied and you say, oh yeah. Um, so uh, tell me about what's going on. And you grab them back and they, they come back into the conversation. Maybe, it, maybe you catch it in time or maybe on your way to the next step because the first step's over. Now we're going to the next step. You start accidentally thinking about what was I doing back there? What happened? That guy wanted to talk to me. That was an open door. I totally blew that open door. And you realize there's an opportunity you missed. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe not. Maybe you're not reflective about the people you encounter. But look, this is easy pickings here. It's really easy to find people that don't know Jesus as their savior. I'm not criticizing them. I'm just saying that's the culture we live in. Jesus, who's that? Jesus, that's what my dad says when he hits his thumb with a hammer. Right? It's easy pickings, but we have to be in the right frame of mind. That's what I'm trying to say. If we focus on Jesus Christ, we focus on the gospel, the joy of our salvation. If we really believe these things, then it's not difficult to say why we have this joy in our hearts. But if in the moment I'm just in right now, it's more about my back pain or my taxes due. I just file in the extension in October like I always do. And here it comes. Whatever the thing is that's on your mind, on your heart, if it's not, if, if I'm not carrying that hope of salvation, that 
Jesus is coming any moment. This may be the last chance this guy gets before we're gone. Um, it's a waste. It's a wasted opportunity. And uh, don't feel for a minute like God is suffering for your waste. He didn't miss it. He didn't miss out. He set you up with an opportunity. God's got this. He can raise up stones to preach the gospel. A rock brains like me. And, and so somebody's, if God's going to put someone in this guy's path with the message, someone's going to respond to the Lord's opportunity. But what a waste for you and me. What a missed opportunity we had. Now, this is just in question of the, question of the, of the issue of evangelizing someone, sharing Christ with someone. Maybe it's just the opportunity to help other believers. Maybe it's the opportunity to, to promote the teaching of the word somehow. Maybe it's the opportunity to teach. But whatever that phase of disciple making, you find yourself being given opportunity. If you're not ready, if you're not thinking already about your so great salvation, if you're not already in that moment believing actively, trusting him, then you're going to get caught off guard. So I challenge you, start the day. God, use me. Help me. The perspective I get from reading 2 Timothy with Pastor Dave, let me have that tomorrow. And with that perspective, let me be ready with the words of life. Don't let me mess it up. I don't even know what to say. Nobody knows what to say. If you're waiting till you're spiritually mature enough to share Christ, you will never be spiritually mature enough. So get over that. Do a little Nehemiah prayer. God, give me wisdom for this man. Help me say the words I need to say. And you watch the spirit of God work in you. We can teach you methods. We can teach you all kinds of ways to share Christ. All kinds of questions. I've got a book of like 1,500 questions you can ask to start a conversation with someone. It's called conversational evangelism. It's an ingenious set of questions to get the conversation rolling or keep it going. We just don't think of ourselves as missionaries, so we don't look at the world as our mission. But that's what 2 Timothy is designed to do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, dedicate the closing moments to anyone that might be in the hearing of my voice that doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Know the Lord Jesus Christ. The way you come to know God is you trust him. The one who comes to God must believe that he is. He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Maybe this is a moment in your life that you have been seeking for anything and everything to satisfy, but nothing has. The simple offer of life that satisfies all of our longings, including desire for significance in life, for meaning, for purpose, for something to really matter. The key is trusting in Jesus as our Savior. That's the beginning of life. And it isn't just that you believe something. It's that in believing something, God does something to you. He gives you his life. He declares you righteous with his perfect righteousness. He doesn't say you have the life. He gives you the life. And now we have and live in eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Father, for those of us who have and do trust in your son, I pray that you will make us effective in the ministry of the gospel. Give us the words to say in those moments. Give us open hearts to you, to your word in the morning so that we live the day with that perspective. Don't let us fall short of these opportunities even as we ask you to bring them to us. We ask it in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen.